Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have a wonderfully insightful conversation with investor, entrepreneur, growth expert, and Ironman athlete, Ed Baker. In this episode, Ed describes his journey into endurance sport and how running in high school enabled him to find confidence and belief in himself in a time when many of us are struggling with insecurities and finding ourselves. He discusses his time running at Harvard and post-university, and then his void of physical activity for 10 years is he was consumed by work, building his own companies, Friendly uh, was one of them, friend.ly, and then eventually at Facebook and Uber. He describes the cultures of Facebook and Uber and his relationships with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. And Ed discusses how he decides to invest and become an advisor in the various companies that he's working with. And we discuss growth and how Ed has used both science and art to grow all of these companies. A lot to learn from this one, from one of the great minds in investing and entrepreneurship. Now, before we go on, Thank you all so much for listening and sharing the show. I'm just truly grateful. If you want to support me and the show and yourself, please give the sponsors of the show a try. Um, I use all of them daily and you truly can't go wrong. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment long. I want to give a huge shout out to Athletic Greens for supporting the show and for just being there every day for me. Athletic Greens is now very much a part of my daily routine. Just such a simple way to get a delicious blend of 75 superfoods, vitamins and minerals and probiotics and so much more. I really encourage you to invest in yourself. Invest in your own health for your performance optimization today and for your longevity. Sign up and have it delivered straight to your door. It's just so simple, tastes great and does what I really need for my health. I've also been doubling down on Athletic Greens Vitamin D. Just a huge proportion of the population are vitamin D deficient, myself included. And I focus heavily on getting out in the sun throughout the day, but when I can't, I religiously supplement with vitamin D. And right now, if you order, they'll give you a year's supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs. Athletic Greens is just so much more than a multivitamin and multimineral. It takes to the next level adding in a daily dose of superfoods, probiotics, greens blends, and so much more to support your gut health, your energy, your immunity, and stress. So please do yourself a favor and sign up. It also makes a great gift for a family member or a friend. So sign up now and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, you've probably heard me on many of the episodes discussing high-priced products with my guests, whether it's sitting in the Normatec compression boots, which I've been doing after solid workouts for, well, 10 plus years, or it's the Hypervolt percussion massage devices that I use daily to warm me up before going to the gym, or the vibrating massage roller, which I use before every run. All of the hyperized gear is just so easy to use and just keeps me going. My goal is to keep moving, keep physically fit for many, many years to come. And using the hyperized products are just helping me do just that. So simple, quick and easy to look after my body at home. And I've just started using the new Hypervolt Go. It's surprisingly powerful and whisper quiet and ultra lightweight at only one and a half pounds or 680 grams. 
and it's 30% smaller than the Hypervolt. The Go is ready to provide relief wherever you roam. With three speed settings, two interchangeable headset attachments, 18-volt rechargeable lithium-ion battery, and like I said, lightweight, easy to use, one and a half pounds, 680 grams, and it's TSA approved for carry-on. So get 10% off at all Hyperice products using code GREG10 at checkout. Go to hyperice.com. That's H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com and use code GREG10 at checkout. Are you someone who uses bike computers while you ride and or wearable devices while you run? Would you like to have it while you swim? For years, I've been using bike computers and wearables on the run to gain feedback to help efficiency and performance. And now I can have it while I swim with the Form Smart Swim Goggles. Honestly, these goggles blew my mind. I put the Form Smart Swim Goggles on and immediately could see the metrics on the screen. I love playing with my stroke rate and seeing how it affects my pace just as I did on the bike for most of my career, always trying to find the best cadence to generate power and create the most speed. With Form Smart Swim Goggles, you can see all the metrics while you're swimming, distance, pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. They have it all. The swim data is displayed on the goggle lens, and you can customize the display to see the metrics you want to see. The goggles track it all and are automated. You start them at the beginning of your swim, and you don't have to press any buttons in between. They automatically track everything. The goggles connect to the Form Swim app on your smartphone, and there you can review all the details of your swims and see what other swimmers are up to in the Form community as well. Battery life is incredible. One hour charge gives you 16 hours of swim time. So go to formswim.com forward slash Greg. That's formswim.com forward slash Greg and get $15 off, or you can use code Greg15 at checkout. All right, today's guest is one of the most remarkable people I've had the privilege of having on the show. On his YouTube page, there's a comment that summed him up pretty well. It says, quote, this man wins at life. Now, this made me laugh, but didn't surprise me. He's a father of four, Harvard grad, MBA at Stanford Business School, investor, entrepreneur, and growth specialist. Previously, vice president of growth at Uber and head of international growth at Facebook. He speaks Mandarin and Japanese. And just recently, at the youthful age of 39, he found Ironman. And he's not just good at his new chosen sport, he's exceptional. At his first Ironman at 2018 Lake Placid, he won overall in 9 hours and 18, only a few months after he started the sport and qualified for Kona Ironman Championships in the process. A month after his breakthrough at Lake Placid, he then went and raced Copenhagen Ironman and was the first age grouper in 8 hours and 27 minutes and finished 10th overall, including the professionals. On top of all of that, he's a great guy, incredibly down to earth, and simply a genuine person. I'm curious how this man operates, family, work, mindset, and his physical prowess. So welcome, and thank you for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show, Ed Baker. How are you, mate? Thank you, Greg. I'm, I'm doing well, and that intro was, was way too kind. I don't think I'm <laughs> going to be able to live up to it. And, uh, you know, I think you recently were talking with Chris McCormack about imposter syndrome, and I feel a bit of that right now, given all of the other amazing guests you have on this show. I feel like I don't belong, but um, I'm happy to have this conversation with you, and I'm a huge fan of this podcast, listen to it every week, so really exciting to be on, on this with you. Isn't it funny when when you're in the position that you are or when you hear Chris McCormack mention it like you did, this imposter syndrome, and yet that introduction was simply just the facts of your life and you still 
feel this kind of imposter syndrome. I mean, how is that with you when when somebody introduces you like that? I mean, are you a confident person or do you shy away from that kind of, you know, introduction? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'd say I, I am, I tend to be confident, but I also feel like, you know, there's so many people out there that are just so much better than me in pretty much anything I do. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I uh, that that reminds me to be, to stay humble. So there there are some things I feel proud of that I've accomplished in my life, but um, I by no means think I'm, you know, the best out there at anything. <laughs> I've done yeah. like a, 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 a many different things, but. Um, you know, not at the kind of best in the world level of many of the guests on your show and, and yourself as well. Mm, well, I, I think that's why we all chose the sport of triathlon. It's kind of, we're, we're good at all three, but we're not fantastic at one. That's <laughs> I mean, right. No, that's a good analogy. You know, I think when you spread it out, I'm, I'm doing all right. <laughs> yeah. Now you and I haven't actually spoken before, but a couple of months ago, I was at the playground, the local playground down here in South Florida. And I bumped into, I believe it's your cousin, um, Angela. Angela, yes. Anyway, and I was saying, you know, I have this amazing podcast, you know, no, whatever. I was saying, look, <laughs> I, host, I host this podcast and I, I speak with high performers and, and health and wellness. And, and and she said, oh, you know, I um, there's somebody that you should really think about. And I, she mentioned your name and I went home and I was just like, wow. And uh, so to finally have you on my show, you know, I really appreciate you coming on again. Um, it's just extraordinary how life takes these turns and who you can meet in a playground. and, and then, <laughs> Such a small know, world. Yeah. That's really it crazy. Really, it, yeah, it really is. Meanwhile, so, I was already listening to your podcast and had no idea you had met my cousin. <laughs> yeah, isn't that brilliant? Yeah. Isn't that fantastic? I have a, I have a list of people that I want to bring on the show. And, and, you know, it goes from sort of athletes and coaches and sports scientists, doctors and entrepreneurs. And your name was kind of covering a few of those areas, you know, the entrepreneurs and the athlete. And so it was, uh, you were the perfect fit for the show. So let's wind the clock back and let's get to understand your journey and process a little bit better. And let's start with the sports side because there's really, there's two Ed Bakers. There's this athlete and there's this academic, you know, business career guy. But let's start with, when did you find your passion for endurance sports? Sure. So, you know, I, I think it actually started around the time I was um, in middle school, 13 years old. And uh, I, I was in seventh grade and we moved across the country from California to Florida, which at that age, that's an especially difficult time to move across the country. And um, this, this was before the internet. So it was kind of like I had to say goodbye to my friends and, and didn't really, and had to make new friends. And um and, you know, I was also, um, you know, in this new environment at that age, uh, I was trying to find my place. And I was kind of initially like the nerdy guy at school. I was, you know, focused on academics and um, I felt like I just didn't really, um, I, I wasn't, I, I hadn't figured out exactly how to fit in. And, um, you know, I, I think I remember you t saying this was kind of how you found running when you were around that age as well. Um, you know, I went to this high school, middle school and high school that was very much focused on sports, had a lot, one of the best football teams in the country. And um, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do? And uh, the summer um, 
I think it was the summer after eighth grade, I got a phone call from the cross country coach uh, asking me if I'd like to come out and try out for the team. And, um, you know, at the time I, I thought, oh, wow, he's really like, that's amazing. He's reaching out to me to recruit me. In hindsight, he probably was just going down the list of every single, you know, <laughs> student that was coming into the school to try to grow the team. Um, yeah. But the fact that he showed that personal interest and reached out to me um, made me decide to give it a try. And so I, I remember showing up to my first practice that summer and um, we uh, we did a warm up to a park that was about a mile away. And after that warm up, I, I didn't realize it was a warm up. And I thought, wow, I just I just jogged a mile. I'm ready to go back now. Are we done? You know, and then then he says, OK, here's what the workout's going to be. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I struggled to keep up with um, I, I ran with uh, some of the girls that day and struggled to keep up, but I kept coming back and and I noticed um, that every week I was getting a little bit faster. And I think that's what um, started to cause me to become addicted to the sport of running was I saw that the more work I put in, uh, the better I became. And, um, and from there, I just, I kept at it. And um, throughout high school, kept running and, and got a little bit faster each year. And, um, uh, you know, still wasn't like fast at a national level or anything like that, but I, I got my mile time down to 423, which for, for that, for my school was a school record. Um, and, uh, and then ended up, um, when I was trying to figure out which college to go to, uh, the the coach at Harvard actually showed some interest in me and um, was kind of uh, interested in recruiting me. I remember that was very different from the Stanford coach who said, well, if your mile time was 10 or 15 seconds faster, I'd be interested. <laughs> um, so, um, but I, I ended up going to Harvard and running there and, um, and athletics became a, a pretty big part of my life in college as well, running on the track and cross country team. Mm -hmm. So that, that was kind of, I, I guess I've taken you from 13 years old to college, but go ahead. No, I, 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 sorry to interrupt your train of thought there, but it's what I love about what you've just said, and you touched on so many things, and, and you're right. For me, it was very similar, was that sport helped me in those developing years, the insecurities which go with being a teenager, trying to fit in. Like you, I went to a school in Sydney that was all about rugby and rowing, mm. and the bigger you were, the more successful you're going to be. And and I was still trying to find my place, and 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 running for me was the thing that I got a little pat on the back. And, and the other thing you mentioned, how one person recognizing you that's right. Made such an impact. And, and and I think we can all do better at that, recognizing each other's strengths, you know, making the effort to reach out and say, hey, you're doing pretty good at something like that. I, I think that's just phenomenal leadership on, on that coach's part. It's uh, so that, true. That, that, that 13-year-old yeah. version of me or 14-year-old version of me needed that at that time. And um, it really set me on a new trajectory. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I need to let that coach know that. I, I haven't spoken yeah. with them in over probably 25 years <laughs> but i and, and yet the, the the influence on on your life probably not only as an athlete but everything else going forward because the confidence you then got as a as a high school runner to then right. you how your relationships and everything that you had going to harvard one of the, the greatest schools in the world um it's just incredible i mean so then you go to harvard 
and it, I interrupted you, your story there. So let's start again at Harvard. And because it doesn't stop, you, your athletic career really started taking off. It, it did. At Harvard, I, again, I found the more work I put in, the, the faster I got. And um, I just kind of um, really liked that. So I, uh, I ran cross country and, and track. And I think my, my best time on the track was the indoor 3K. I went 8.07 um, at one wow. meet. Um, although I actually got disqualified in that meet, I still call it my PR. Um, but uh, <laughs> what, what happened? What, what you get disqualified? How do you get disqualified in a race? Did you elbow somebody? Or it's, what it's the only time I've ever been disqualified from a race, and it also happened to yeah. be my fastest ever race. Um, oh. What I did, did was, <laughs> and this was on the indoor track, so 200 meters each lap. Um, yeah. On the on the last stretch, um, in the very last lap. Um, there was a, one other guy from Brown and myself who were right next to each other. And I was in lane one. He was right behind me, kind of in lane two. But I finished in lane four and he l- finished in lane five. So I was kind of, I, oh, I didn't okay. even realize I was doing it, but I was kind of like, you know, trying to stay in front of him. Ironically, he ran 807.00. I ran 807.04. So I saw my name up on the scoreboard in second place, four one hundredths of a second behind him. And then, 20 seconds later, my name disappeared. <laughs> oh, um, you basically shoved him out. I shoved him out. He still beat me, uh, even though I shoved him out. But, um, yeah. you know, less, lesson learned there. Um, yeah. And yeah. then in cross country, I, I, um, I ran at the NCAA national meet my junior and senior year. Um, so that was kind of my, my highlight um, on the cross country team. And, uh, and actually, I, I mentioned the Stanford coach saying I wasn't fast enough to run at Stanford. One thing I did feel good about was I, I beat quite a few of the, the guys on their team at that meet. Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> Don't, the, the fuel, and I've talked about it in this podcast a few times, the fuel of people that doubt you. <laughs> That's right. It's so powerful, isn't it? Isn't it? The, it it, one it of really is. <laughs> I, I, you know, I heard um, a podcast recently where Michael Phelps was talking about how that motivates him. And anytime someone tells him something's impossible, that is like more motivation than anything else. I think Ian Thorpe might have said, oh, he'll never get eight gold medals. And Michael Phelps said, as soon as he said that, I knew I was going to. <laughs> <laughs> Funny because I think when I had Gwen Jorgensen uh, on, on the show, 2016 gold medalist triathlete, and she, we were talking about this, what fuels you more, the person that sort of pumps you up and, right. and gets you going or the one that kind of tells you you can't do it. And, and the different personalities and where we are in our lives and careers, it can impact us both ways. <laughs> you know, it, it, it can be... I, I find the negative can really affect me if I'm not feeling strong with and confident within myself. It can right. actually drag me down. Right. But when you feel kind of like, no, I got that. Even with this podcast, if I get 20 great reviews yep. and then I get that one person that goes, you know what, Greg, you know, you talk too much or whatever it is. That, right, I'm right. Like, oh, <laughs> that really hurt. But if I'm feeling really good about myself, I'm like, no, I get it. Sometimes I do. I could back off right, a little bit. <laughs> right. Now, and I, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot as it has been a theme I've noticed in your podcast. And then there's the other end of the spectrum with Mark Allen and, and being fueled by just uh, love and peace. And, you know, and I, mm. I, I actually want to be fueled more in that way. And I'm trying to learn to do that. But I, I think it's a combination of the two. It is a combination of the two. I got a question because I, I just, an indoor track compared to an outdoor track, what's the kind of 
time difference? Is it like swimming a 25-meter pool to a 50-meter pool, or is it much the same? That's a good question, and I, I don't know the answer. I know I actually often ran better indoor, even though um, it technically shouldn't be as fast, just because it was inside, so there was never wind, and the Harvard outdoor track always was windy. Um, and the, the Harvard indoor track is also banked, so I found that helped. Whereas if, mm. if I was on a track that was just flat, 200-meter loop, um, as you're going around those tight curves, it can really yeah, yeah. be difficult. Yeah, that would not be good for the body. <laughs> and anyway, th- th- then you moved on. Um, when, when you finished at Harvard and yes. a very successful running career there, was there any ambitions to run professionally or, or Olympics? You know, or I, 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 I never thought I was good enough to compete at that level. Um, I, I was at, at Harvard, I was a good runner, but at the national level, I, I was not, you know, one of the top in the country. You know, that said, I, I, I kind of thought, okay, I'm college, I've graduated from college, I'm done with running, I'm going to just start focusing on my career. But what I noticed pretty quickly was that I missed running. And I just started running again, just to kind of feel good again and stay in shape. Mm-hmm. And I found a um, local team. I was living in Boston and I started training with the BAA, uh, Boston Athletic Association. They had a team. And um, and then I uh, decided I wanted to try the marathon. And, um, and I um, eventually uh, ran a fast enough marathon time to qualify for the Olympic trials. Once again, I knew I wasn't going to be one of the top three in the country and make it to the Olympic team, but I was excited just to break that. At, at that time, I ran a 221 to hit that qualification mark. That's, that's good. It's so, good running. That's good running, but I get what you mean. A, a 221 is, is fast. Right, but, but you need it to be 10 minutes faster to make Exactly. You know, so <laughs> yeah. in 10 minutes. Then even quicker, yeah. You know, the, it's the a lot US of time. team. <laughs> In, in that generation too, I mean, there were so many guys that suddenly started breaking 210, you right. know, and it was like, wow, when you're talking, I think, what, your generation with Meb. That's and, right. Uh, Meb and Ryan Hall. Ryan Hall, yep. yeah. I mean, that was a, an amazing group that suddenly just came through. Um, it really was. So not, not, but I also, you also ran a spectacular half marathon. Well, I did. A that good that half probably was my best. Uh, my, I think my half marathon PR is better than my marathon PR. I ran a 105 uh, mm. in the half. Um, that was in, uh, I think that was in Houston. What was your 10K kind of best? Did you do many road races? I did or? not do many road races, so I, I don't even remember what my best 10K was. I think my best mm. 5K on the track was 1423. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, th- I, yeah. I may have been a little under around 30 minutes, a little under 30 minutes probably for the 10K. That's still that's still very good running, um, but then you, I mean let's leapfrog because then there seems to be this, uh, you know, you ran in your twenties and and then there's this dark patch. Of, <laughs> that's right. Of, of, of void. A, a, How do a I put it? Year and, and, hiatus. Yes. <laughs> where and I then it's like totally yeah. put athletics aside. I know, and we'll go through that a bit and the reasons why. But but let's leapfrog that for a moment, and you know you you find. Ironman. How did you find Ironman and what was that process? Sure. So I, I guess after the 2007 Olympic trials and the marathon, I felt like, you know what? I've hit my peak. I'm 28 years old. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> Why even keep going? You know, I'm going to focus on my career. I'm going to have a family. Um, and I, I basically just felt like that, that 
you know, part of my life was over. Um, mm. But then um, I guess what happened was um, when I fast forwarding several years, kind of at the end of my time at Uber, um, I had I had just gotten into uh, cycling. Uh, again, just as a way to keep in shape. I was actually living in Palo Alto and working in San Francisco. So I decided to get a road bike and once a week um, bike to work. It was maybe like a 40 mile uh, trip. And I, I still remember when I got my road first road bike in 20, probably 2014, um, I was trying to learn how to clip the pedals on and not fall off. And I had my oh, bike yeah. at the Uber <laughs> office and some of my co-workers were showing me how to do it the right way without falling. Um, so I got into cycling and I thought, well, this is nice. There's not as much impact. Um, and I, I found a group that went on um, rides in the Bay Area uh, once a week. Um, in fact, I met Kate Courtney in that group and some, some other really amazing riders. And as quite a few of those riders were um, triathletes, and they said, you know, Ed, you should learn to swim and try to do a triathlon sometime. So I then went out to the Stanford Masters swim practice to try to learn how to swim. And I remember the first day I hopped in the slowest lane. And after just a few laps, I was just breathing so hard I couldn't keep up. And I just thought, how do they do this? You know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't realize how important technique was. Um, mm-hmm. And so... And then actually right around that time, we decided to move uh, back to the East Coast, um, to the Boston area. And um, I also decided I need a triathlon coach if I'm going to actually learn how to do all of this stuff. So I, um, right around the time I moved, I actually found uh, a coach, Matt Dixon, who really helped me um, understand what triathlons are and how to train for them. And um, also the mental aspect of it, I found he, he really helped me with that. Um, mm. And um, and then I just kind of I got I got hooked and was started training and um, you know did my first Ironman as you mentioned in Lake Placid in 2018 and um, and just really um, I I was just got addicted <laughs> yeah it, it is like that isn't it? i yeah. tell everybody if you're going to do this sport be careful be ready that's because right because it's it's the there's something about it and it's the definitely the community and the people but the the also the the, the looking over the edge yes. and testing yourself going beyond where you've been before is just so empowering that you want to keep finding more and the thing we try on it's very hard to perfect so there's this constant Trying to be better, trying to be better. Um, I don't know. That, That's that, part that of what I love anyway. about it. Exactly. Is yeah. you, you can yeah. always get better. There's so many things that you can, you, you can never, you, you can never be perfect. So there are always things to improve. And, and I love that. And as long as I can keep improving, I think I'm going to keep doing it. Oh, why not? I mean, it's <laughs> one of the greatest, the greatest sports for longevity and health. A quick mini break. I really want to encourage you to do something special for yourself and sign up to Athletic Greens and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I'm loving the new Hypervolt Go percussion massage device from Hyperice. It's powerful, quiet, lightweight, 
and TSA approved so I can use it while I travel. Check out the Hypervolt Go and all the other incredible Hyperice gear at hyperice.com and use code GREG10 for a 10% discount. That's hyperice.com. If you want to see all your key metrics like pace, distance, strike rate, and heart rate while you swim, you need the Form Smart Swim Goggles. Go to formswim.com forward slash Greg. That's formswim.com forward slash Greg and get $15 off. Or you can use code GREG15 at checkout. You touched on a few things there that I just want to have a look at. And I love the story of learning how to clip in on the bike. <laughs> when I started the sport, we had toe straps and you had to reach down and, and try and clip, you know, ah, right, strap right. your foot in. <laughs> and then I remember these special clipless pedals came in, you know, like ski binders in the late 80s. We were like, whoa, what are these? And the amount of times, you know, you couldn't get your foot out at a set of lights and you just <laughs> you fall off and <laughs> very hurt your, hurt right. your ego. And then you you, you discussed uh, your cycling group mm-hmm. in, in Palo Alto there and um, mentioned Kate Courtney, who's been on this show. Right, that's right. I don't, I don't know about you, but I think she's one of the most phenomenal, phenomenal people I think I've ever she met. Is. I think she's... Uh, She's Stanford grad herself, world champion, mountain biker for people that haven't heard. If you want to listen to a great episode, um, you know, I really enjoyed getting to know her on, on, on that show. Are you still yeah, she's amazing. have much to do with, with Kate? I, you know, we haven't been in, in touch since I moved to Boston, but she was always out there on those, those long rides. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, fu- a, a group of us that would just go on long rides every Wednesday. And this was after I had... Um, left Uber and was taking some time off. So I had, I, I was able to spend Wednesdays as my long ride days. <laughs> and, and and you mentioned Matt Dixon. Are you, are you still coached by Matt? I'm actually now coached by Dan Plews. So, um, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I know he was also on your podcast and is a friend of yours. And uh, Dan's been amazing. You know, both Matt and Dan have been amazing coaches and yeah, friends. Brilliant. And I've learned a, a whole lot from both of them. Um so I, I, I worked with Matt until um, until 2019 when I um, was in a bike crash. And then I took a year completely off, actually, from right after my 40th birthday when I was in the bike accident to pretty much right after my 41st birthday, um, which was uh, April of last year, right after the pandemic started. And I decided, you know what? I, I, I'm ready to get back into it. <laughs> so, and that's when I, um, I had actually reached out to Dan to ask for some nutrition advice. And, um, and then he and I, you know, he said, you know, there's some stuff I'd love your help with in the startup world. And if you can help me with that, and maybe I can help you with coaching and we can, you know, do that, l- that a little fantastic? barter system. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. So, you were listening, uh, Dr. Dan Plews was on probably oh, five or six episodes ago now and uh, wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, he has a business called Endure IQ uh, and you can do different kind of certificates there, um, nutrition and all sorts of things, but it's also coaching. Um, just phenomenal human being. And, you, and Matt Dixon, actually, I'm just corresponding with him at the moment. And I think he's coming onto my show in early March. Oh, great. And then I think I'll be on his show at a, at a later point as well. So we, we're both connecting to have some great conversations in the future here as well. So two great people that you've had mentoring you in your journey. And now let's just touch back on your, your Ironman here, because it was like you had this breakthrough year in 2018, three Ironmans in the year. You, you struggled to finish in Kona in 2018, That's correct? That's right. I, I did not finish. 
Yeah, you had some hip issues or something. I did. And, you know, I've been having, in fact, that's part of the reason I, I stopped running was I had hip issue, hip flexor issues back then. And um, in Kona, I was uh, feeling a really tight hip the days leading up to the race. And um, by the time I got to the run, I just, uh, I, I couldn't do it. And I, I'm sure it was a lot of other things as well. I mean, I was just in a lot of pain for <laughs> because it was Kona. <laughs> um, and maybe I used my hip just as an excuse. But um, at some point, I, I would love to return to Kona and try to actually finish that race. <laughs> well, I have no doubt you will. I mean, I think the hip flexors for all of us in triathlon become a very dominating muscle, mm. and especially when the other ones get fatigued or are tight. And, you know, the psoas muscle is such a dominant muscle that it can – it's caused me a lot of grief mm-hmm. throughout my career, and it's been a constant process of – you know, these days I use the vibrating rollers before I go out for every run. I use the, you know, and I don't mean to be selling everything right now, but I am using all the hyperized gear, which I have to do to keep myself warmed up. You know, the hyperized thing bolt right into my glutes uh, and then the rollers on my quads just to keep those quads loosened up. And if I can keep the quads loosened up, it's amazing how my hip flexors don't give me as much grief. Do you do and the hyper ice on your hip flexors well, on the ileus uh, so as? Uh, it's hard to get it deep yep. in there. They they have a little vibrating ball, and I tried using that. The best thing I've found for the psoas is to just do that PNF stretch off the side of the bed. So, you know, you, you lift one knee up to your chest, and then ideally you have somebody. I usually have my wife Laura. She'll push, you know, my knee against my chest and push down the other leg, and I'll do some PNF stretching. So five seconds, push against her hand, mm. relax. And we open up our hips that way. That has been a lifesaver. Really? We, we've done that each other for 20 years of just trying to keep that psoas and the other thing that really works for me with releasing the psoas is dry needling now depending on the state you're in in the u.s and where you are um we have a girl um in a woman i should say in 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 boulder and uh she's been absolutely fantastic at at just doing some of that deep dry needling into your your hips so that that also helps so anyway you know the the one thing i found um just on this tangent is I discovered the hip hook a couple of months ago. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's been uh, I saw that. that's I, been I, a game I, changer I, for me. Um, interesting. And I, I saw that. Um, I think it, Matt Han- Matt Hansen uses it, and yeah. yeah, you basically just it's it's this plastic hook. You lie on it, and then you push the handle down, and it digs into not just your psoas but also your iliacus. And it hits mm. both of those muscles at the same time, and you just leave it, leave that pressure there for about ninety seconds, so that you release. <laughs> it's so yeah, it's painful, it's so but it's like after yeah. the first thirty seconds, it actually doesn't hurt yeah. as much. And yeah. for me, that's actually made a huge difference. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, and, and I didn't mention the name of the I, Christine Bell is the the woman we use in Boulder for anybody listening that's in Colorado. Absolutely fantastic with that stuff. But I have to check out that hook as well. That sounds like a, a really good idea, especially to to just do it on your own. Now, tell me, you just you touched on the accident you had in 2019. What was that? What happened? You know, I was on a a ride with um, the Zwift team. <laughs> Ironically, Zwift. We were all riding outside together. Um, from San Francisco down to LA. So it was the a coast ride. We were going to spend three days doing it. And I had done this ride the year before. And um, I, uh, you know, 
made a, a rookie mistake of not realizing my chain was needed to be replaced. And um, in the first day, my chain kept slipping off the chain ring. And um, most of the time I would just spin out and it was fine. And I thought, okay, when tonight when we get to uh, the place we're staying, I'll, I'll get a new chain and put it on then. Um, but towards the end of that day, uh, the chain slipped off the chain ring, but this time uh, just locked it up as we were going oh, pretty fast um, and, and kind of turning a bit as well. And so I just flew off, uh, flew off my bike. Fortunately, there were no cars involved, um, but I uh, broke my clavicle and several ribs and the transverse process. Uh, so I was oh. pretty beat up. Um, and, uh, considered just quitting for good after that accident. Mm -hmm. Um, but instead I, I basically took a year off and then realized I wasn't ready to, to, to quit for good yet. No, it's way too soon for you. <laughs> be good. I'm very glad you didn't. When you break those ribs, how painful is it to laugh? And oh, laugh? I it's know. The worst. <laughs> it really is. People, people often say, oh, I fractured or broke my ribs. And I'm like, it is the most agonizing. It just keeps going and going and going. How was it like? I mean, you, you got four kids. <laughs> How was it lifting kids or having them wanted to wrestle? With I know. Dad? Fortunately, I have an amazing wife who um, was, oh. you know, was always always there to support me at times like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think that's that's brilliant because it was interesting, you know, in doing a bit of homework for this, and it was kind of like, yeah, it was this incredible 2018, and then I reckon I knew you'd had the accident and. It was kind of like, well, where's where's Ed? Because <laughs> we, we certainly haven't seen your full potential yeah. in the sport. I think we've had a glimpse, and right. uh, I'm excited to hear that you've, you know, you're working with with Doctor Doctor Plues yeah. and uh, and his team because I think that's he's doing incredible work with people like Terenza Bazone and um, oh. he takes a very scientific approach to the sport, uh, which I really <laughs> like. Yeah, and no, he, he would. And yeah, I was, I was, you know, feeling like I was in the best shape of my life um, in that month before the accident. I had just turned 40. I had done um, uh, the, the 70.3 in Oceanside. And then a week later did the 70.3 in China, Liuzhou, China. Um, had my best kind of run splits and bike splits in those two back-to-back -back races and um, was just kind of feeling on top of the world. And then uh, it was, I think, two weeks later that I was in that bike crash. So, oh, um, you know, it was uh, going from the, the highest high to the lowest low. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how that kind of happens, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned Leocho, the 70.3. Did that qualify you for Kona? It did, Because yes. some of those Chinese, so you'd already qualified. That's right. Kona in 29. That's right. Hey, was the plan still to do another Ironman to qualify, uh, just to do one? Um, or were you going to I'm go trying to remember. I think... Um, I don't think I was going to do another one. I think I was just going to use that to go to Kona. Yeah. 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 You'd already done the three the previous right. year. Yeah. Uh, no, that was, it was funny because when I was looking, um, I was coaching an athlete a few years ago and, and, you know, he was desperately wanting to go to Kona and you start looking, if you have the means to be able to fly to China, there was a couple of races there that, that would qualify you for, for Kona. I'm like, well, why don't we go check those out? And, um, I don't know that he ever ended up going and doing them, but it's not a bad idea if, you know, if you, if you're a very good 70.3 athlete and there are a few ways to get to Kona, I'm all for it, you know, right. especially if you're, yep. you've already proven yourself, <laughs> right. do Ironman everybody. It's not that I haven't yep. done one, you know, 
So and I think Craig I Alexander was in that race. He won he actually won the race. Okay, yeah. 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 I yeah, it's it's I'm not sure if they still do it or not, if, or what's happening in twenty twenty one, but um it's not a bad way to, to get to Kona. Now what I'd like to do is shift gear. Okay. And look at your career because this is just phenomenal in my mind of so take us through obviously you're an academic i mean to get into harvard from what i understand as an australian <laughs> it's uh it's quite it's quite the process um i think it's a lot harder that. now than it was back then it just keeps getting no, you're not more, at all <laughs> more challenging <laughs> is that right yeah, but tell me about that kind of process, your your, your education, and then moving into the different roles and and the businesses you've been involved in. Sure. So, at Harvard, I studied physics, physics and chemistry. I was always into math and science, and um, I also built my first website when I was at Harvard, and it was called datesite.com. It was basically like a, a crush site, kind of like Tinder. Um, <laughs> but this was with email addresses and not photos. So the way it worked was you put in email addresses of people you had a crush on. They'd get an email saying, somebody likes you. Go to datesite.com to find out who. And then they'd have to put in email addresses of people they had crushes on. And if it matched, we'd let both people know. And so um, I built that with my roommates. And we launched it on Valentine's Day of 1999. And within one week... Uh, one quarter of all the students at Harvard had signed up for it. So Get maybe that tells you something about <laughs> students at Harvard and their their love lives. But, <laughs> you know, I built the, I, I, I built it because I was personally too, you know, too afraid to ask girls out to their face and thought this would be a way to kind of break oh, the ice. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> I love that. It's yeah. pretty and so and then we launched it at mit similar thing it just blew up there and okay. for me that was that was my first time experiencing exponential growth on the internet and just seeing the power of the internet and how you could literally have an idea and build something and then just see that take off and mm -hmm. um and with my math and science background, I was especially interested in the, the mathematics behind that viral growth. And that was something I continued to kind of iterate on and built this framework over time of how to think about growing things on the internet, um, using basically using a mathematical formula to calculate something called the k-factor. And, um, and if you get that k-factor above one, that's basically when you hit the tipping point where it explodes. And if your K factor is below one, um, you don't see any growth at all. So it's a very binary thing. Um, and you can actually measure it and you can see how close you are to that, uh, to that tipping point. So if you build something and you measure it and you see the K factor is 0.8, you know, all right, we're pretty close. Like if we just make a few more tweaks and get this above one, that's when we can see it really take off. So it's not just a matter of going, okay, we got 500 users now. There's a lot more to it. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But, you know, but I, I call it the K factor. It's actually a very simple concept, um, which is you want to make sure that everyone, every new user who uses the site 
invites at least one more friend who comes on and uses the site. So a K factor of two, for example, would mean that everyone who signs up gets two of their friends on, and then those two get four on, and those four turn into eight. So it just kind of keeps doubling. I've never built something that has a K factor that high. You don't need it to be two. Even 1.4, I built a Facebook app one time that had a K factor of 1.4. It went from one user to 5 million users in five weeks. So it's extremely powerful. Just getting that a little bit above one can really cause it to take off. What I mean, let's keep going on this because (laughs) I'm fascinated. So what is it that you do when you're like, oh, I'm at point eight, so this is not going to work. What when you're talking about growth, what are you doing to tweak it to try sure. and get it to work? So the first step is to actually draw out your viral loop, and what I mean by that is, it's just what are the steps between um, kind of the first user signing up and them getting a friend to sign up. So mm-hmm. with date site, what that would have been was, um, I sign up for a date site, I put in some email addresses, those people get emails, they click on the emails, they sign up, and then they put in email addresses and the loop continues, right? So you kind of draw it out. And then what you can do is you can measure the conversion rate of each of those arrows. So, you know, how many people who get an email actually click on it and sign up? And of of that group, how many of those people actually enter email addresses themselves? And then of that group, on average, how many email addresses are they entering? And you kind of just multiply all those numbers together to get your K factor. Um, mm-hmm. And so what you can do then is say, well, you know what? Uh, when, when 100 crush emails get sent out, only 10 people are signing up. How do we get that number from 10 to 20? Well, if mm-hmm. we change the copy of the, of the text, maybe... You know, for example, back then, one of the tweaks we made was instead of saying somebody likes you, we'd say somebody who lives in California likes you, you know, and just adding that that one extra word or two extra words would make people more likely to actually click on it and try to find out who it was. Um, So you're really understanding the human that's right. Human psyche, human psyche is everything. Understanding how somebody's reacting when they get there's a huge things. amount of psychology. I, I like to call growth a combination of art and science. And I used to think the, the kind of magic sauce was the science, but as I've now worked on growth for two decades mm-hmm. now, um, I, I realize it's actually the art more than the science. I think that is is actually the hard part. And is human behavior have you seen over the last twenty years in has it changed? Are we reacting differently? <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of the fundamental stuff is the same, but um, things that have changed are, for example, back when I built DateSite, people didn't have spam filters. People actually, if they got an email saying someone likes you, they would believe it. <laughs> yeah, now, and actually, now, it's, it, like, now oh. it's like, oh, that's spam. I'm going to ignore that. So those types of things have changed. But, um, you know, the basic framework is the same. And I think the the things that motivate people uh, are largely the same. And so, you know, and it's been interesting working on this kind of stuff for, for the last two decades, um, kind of both on my own startups, but also at places like Facebook and Uber, um, just running all these different experiments. And, and we, we call them A-B tests. We're like, well, let's test this versus this and see which one performs better. And um, over time, you can kind of figure out 
or you learn in the process. There are a lot of times I've run A-B tests that have, where the result has surprised me, um, or it's maybe not what I would have thought it would be. But you, you start to learn kind of what types of things work and don't work, and then it becomes easier to, um, to kind of get closer to that tipping point. And, and when you, let, let's go back to date site then. Sure. Were you able to monetize that while you were at college? I mean, how do you monetize these businesses where you've got all these people using Yeah, good question. Uh, so with DateSite in college, I did not, although I built another version of DateSite when I was at business school at Stanford, and that one I did monetize. And in that case, what I did was I just added um, kind of a, a co-registration flow. So I... The version I built when I was in business school was using phone numbers rather than email addresses, and there was a um, mobile uh, uh, a startup that was building something in the mobile space that was trying to get new users. And they said, "Ed, if you add um, kind of a a step to your registration flow that says, would you like to get free coupons sent to your cell phone from us?'" we'll pay you $5 every time someone signs up. So, uh, you know, we just added that to the to the flow and then suddenly we were making money just by, you know, getting, getting people to sign up for this other service. Um, but it was still, you know, it was more of just like a very simple product that grew quickly, but then people didn't really come back and keep using it. And- What was the name of that product? What was that one? Oh, that, that one was, I, I also called that Date site. The, that was a mobile okay. version of date site. So I, I kind of just said, I did this in college with emails. I'm going to try it while I'm in business school with phone numbers. <laughs> um, it was just pretty much the same thing. Um, but then, you know, there was after business school, I actually started a company called Friendly, friend.ly, um, used similar kind of viral growth uh, techniques and grew Friendly to about 25 million registered users. Wow. Wow. And, and so you were able to monetize that one? Was that, that one, we, that? you know what, we, um, we'd monetized a little bit with ads, but we actually didn't, um, we didn't make a whole lot of revenue with Friendly. We ended up selling the company before we figured out how to monetize it. Mm. Who did you sell it to? We sold it to Facebook. Okay, and so that was your introduction into Facebook. That's right. Was that, that was, was that, that was in um, 2011. Um, I was trying to decide between raising more money for Friendly or selling the company, and um, uh, we were considering possibly selling to Google or possibly selling to Facebook. And um, you know, I, I actually. The, the, the process with Facebook just happened much more quickly. I was introduced to Mark Zuckerberg, went on a long walk with him around Palo Alto, and the next day they gave us a term sheet to acquire the company. So it all happened pretty quickly. Wow. Wow. And so then, and, and a part of that acquisition was you would work at Facebook with international That's growth? Right. Or, or what was that? That's right. Yeah. So I, I then, my team and I um, joined Facebook after the acquisition. And I ended up running the international growth team there for a couple of years. 
Wow. And what was that? What did you see in terms of growth well, when so you started you, to when you left? Well, I mean, Facebook was a rocket ship and <laughs> I can't take credit <laughs> for for their their amazing growth. But I, I do like to think that some of the things we did uh, accelerated the growth. Um, but the most important thing was Facebook had product market fit. And when you have product market fit, which basically means like the people that use it love it and are already just telling their friends about it because they love it. Uh, it's so much easier to grow something that has product market fit than something that doesn't. And so, you know, what we did was uh, on international growth, we focused on kind of two sets of markets. One was uh, our more competitive markets, which at the time were Japan, Korea, and Russia. And then we also focused on emerging markets like India, Southeast Asia, Latin America, and Africa, and um, did different things in those different markets to accelerate growth. Mm. So for example, um, in some of the emerging markets like India, um, one, of the, one of the barriers to growth was that people didn't want to pay for the data usage on their cell phone. Um, and so we, we worked out deals with mobile carriers to say, Facebook's free. If you go to Facebook on your cell phone, you won't get charged for the data. And so that wow. removed a big barrier to people that otherwise um, might not have used the product. What did the mobile carriers get in return for allowing Facebook to do that? In return, they got people wanting to use their uh use them as a carrier because they get free Facebook. Uh, so yeah. Facebook was kind of like a killer app in, in the country. And if one of the carriers said Facebook's free, um, people would sign up for that carrier. Wow. And now, look, I, I did a little bit of homework on, on where Facebook's at now. And I think it's close to 3 billion users or something. It's uh, crazy, especially of- when you look across all of their products because it's not just facebook anymore facebook includes instagram and whatsapp and um and yeah i mean they're they're pretty much uh more more people in the world using facebook than not almost (laughs) um when i was there we were really proud to cross the 1 billion monthly active user mark i remember um zuck said that was the most proud day of his life that we we hit that milestone which um i believe we hit I think that was shortly before we went public. Now, now you're you're throwing Mark Zuckerberg's name around, uh, and and you're doing it very with a lot of humility. But your relationship with him, it was it purely business? Are you guys mates beyond beyond the business? And and what was he like to work with? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, he was an amazing CEO and entrepreneur to work with. And I, I learned a ton from him, as I think did everyone who um, worked at or still works at Facebook. Um, so it, it was just amazing to kind of see how he um, approached you know, solving problems every single day. And he's also one of the most competitive people I've ever met. <laughs> so right? was, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. for sure. I think that that really drove him and I, I, other other founders and CEOs I've worked with. I feel like it's the same thing. Being super competitive is is an important quality in, in a CEO. Um, and, you know, I, I, I worked, I, I worked for him at his company and got to know him um, during that time, just like everyone else who was working at Facebook did, um, it was a smaller company back then. I guess these days it's it's such a big company that 
Uh, maybe he's not as accessible now as, as he used to be. Um, and I'd like to think of him as a friend these days. We every once in a while message back and forth, but he's so busy that, you know, <laughs> um, I can't say he's not like a friend I go hang out with. <laughs> uh, I think he's been busy these days on many fronts, That's putting right. out fires. That's right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> buying other companies. I think, he, yeah, it seems to me he must be just constantly on oh, the go. Sure. But then your next move was across to this small little company called Uber. Yes. And I'm fascinated by, I guess, why you left Facebook and what what attracted you to go to Uber to begin with. Sure. So with Uber, I still remember the first time I used Uber as a customer. Um, It just felt magical. Me too. Right? I I think most people probably remember their first Uber ride because like, wow, I press a button and I get a car that just shows up where I am. I don't have to go out and raise my hand and try to flag down a taxi. And um, so, and it's one of those ideas too, I think in hindsight, it's so obvious. It's like, okay, I mean, this should have always existed. So on on the one hand, I felt like it was a magical product from the, the customer point of view, but then I also would talk to the drivers and they would tell me this is amazing. I can now make money in a flexible way. I can work when I want. I'm making more money than I made before. So the drivers loved it as well. And so the fact that both the riders and the drivers just loved this product and felt like it was life-changing for them made me feel like this company has product market fit. Even though it's still a small startup that a lot of people haven't yet heard of, I I'm excited to go there and and help them grow. And I remember when I made the decision to leave Facebook and go there, my uh, my parents thought I was kind of crazy. They're like, "Why would you leave Facebook to go work for some limo company?" users, and you exactly. But it it you know it was um it, it was a somewhat risky move at the time. But I just believed so much in in the product. And um, I also felt like, you know, I, I had done my own early stage startup that was friendly, that was 12 people when we sold the company to Facebook. And then when I joined Facebook, it was already over a thousand people there. And so I felt like I kind of missed the the stage in between. And mm. Uber felt like it was at that stage. There were about 100 people at their headquarters when I joined. Um, we were all crammed into one floor on in this office building. There weren't enough desks for everyone. I had to just put my laptop in between two other people uh, on my first day. Um, and so it was it still felt like a very scrappy startup when I when I joined the company. And um, and I like that. And, you know, and it was a, a crazy four years. Um, by the time I I left the company four years later, there were 10,000 employees at the company. And, um, you know, my own team went from five people on day one to uh, over 500, or if you include all the embedded engineers, over 1,000 people. Um, so it was a, a lot of change in a short amount of time. Um to you know, kind of experience that hyper growth at Uber. I have so many questions <laughs> on that. I mean, I guess, I guess the first one is: Were you headhunted, or did you just see this company and reach out to them? So you know, I actually knew Travis, who was a founder and CEO at the time. 
from before he started Uber. He used okay. to have uh, what he called jam sessions at his apartment in San Francisco um, on like Friday nights, which was basically just a bunch of entrepreneurs getting together and having beers and brainstorming startup ideas. And wow. I got to know him at that time. And then, um, then he started Uber and I was catching up with him over breakfast one morning trying to convince him to let me invest in the company. And he ultimately convinced me to join the company. Gotcha. And then I guess on, on that, once you've made the transition over, you've got five employees. Did you suddenly, your role changed to become more of a, a leadership role? Or were you always, did you find you were hands-on, still enjoying the math that you enjoy and understanding the measure and growth and metrics and everything that goes with it? Yeah, that's a good question. So on day one, when I started at Uber, I was very much in the weeds um, with a team of five people. And you know, our CEO, Travis, said to me on day one, he said, here are five people to start the growth team with. Go ahead. And I said, well, who who reports to who at this company? And he's like, I don't know, figure it out. <laughs> you know, And I, I kind of loved how he's just very much... An entrepreneur, oh he's like, I don't want to think about reporting lines and all of that stuff. I just like, just figure out how to do this and, and let's win. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we we figured it out. And in those early days, um, I was very much in the, the, the weeds and the details of the product and doing what I loved. Um, as the team grew over time, um, I started to, I was over time starting to manage people who were managing people who were managing people. And a lot more of my time started being spent on uh, mm. HR and, and, and other things related to just managing a larger organization. And I, I didn't spend as much time on, on the, you know, growth stuff that I, I really loved. And, mm. you know, that was part of the reason I, um, over time felt like it, it i wasn't doing what i loved every day in the same way i was in the early days mm. it's incredible how that kind of changed and the change was very quick it was <laughs> i mean four years from being a hands-on guy to being a manager a leader hr all of that yeah. that, that, that is incredible and suddenly like do i really want to be here? Um, <laughs> i think some would argue it was too quick at uber um you know i remember mark zuckerberg once saying uh Doubling the company's headcount every year was about the the maximum growth that he thought was could be done in a sustainable way, where you really preserve the culture of the company. Um, and at Uber, we were doubling headcount every six months. And if you think about that, what that means is, if you're in a, a meeting with a random group of employees and you're doubling every six months three quarters of the people in that room in that meeting will have been at the company for less than a year. So kind of the new employees outnumber the employees who've been there more than a year. And I think that really puts a strain on the culture and makes it harder to really maintain a culture. No, it's team and relationships have been constantly having to be rebuilt and rebuilt. That's right. <laughs> you know. when, when, you, when, you know, being that the growth is your, your thing, how do you measure growth at Uber, I mean, you've got the drivers and you've got the riders, which 
who 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 says the business is successful? <laughs> the, the people riding or the drive? The, the Good driving? question. Yeah. So th- that was actually one of the very first questions we um, needed to answer when we started the growth team was, what is our north star metric? Um, mm. And having that north star metric is is critical because it's the one metric that everyone gets aligned around in terms of this is the number that we are focused on growing. This is the number we're going to set goals at, you know, by the first half of the year, we want to be here. By the end of the year, we want to be here. Um, So having that North Star metric is super important. At Uber, the North Star metric was monthly active users. And since it was not a two-sided marketplace, it really just had users that could be our North Star metric. And by the way, when we hit 1 billion monthly active users at Facebook, we changed our North Star metric to be daily active users. We're like, now let's try to hit 1 billion daily active users. At Uber, um, to your point, we had both riders and drivers. So we didn't want the North Star metric to be just one of those groups. And so what we ultimately landed on was weekly trips, uh, weekly trips that happen around the around the world. And the nice thing about a trip is every trip requires a driver and a rider. And so that trips metric encapsulated both sides of the marketplace. That makes sense. So, and then we, we'd kind of be able to branch that and say, well, for more trips to happen, we need more riders and we need more drivers. And then we kind of built out a rider growth team that was focused on the, the demand side and a driver growth team that was focused on the supply side. So, so did Uber grow quicker than Facebook or was it about – were they both fairly similar uh, using your metrics for both? Sure. I, I think in terms of revenue, I think they did, although I, I'm going to have to I – sh- I should know the answer to this question, but I don't. In terms of <laughs> users, I don't think so just because Facebook being a free product, um, mm. it's easier to grow something that's free than something that costs money. No, that makes sense. Now, you're obviously somebody that knows how to pick pretty good companies. Are you looking at the product or, or the people when you invest in, in the, the varying companies? You know, I, I, I look at both very closely. I think you really need both. Um, so in terms of the product, I, I look for companies that have a product that I just really personally love. Um, I know some investors say, oh, you shouldn't base it on what you, you know, what appeals to you. You should be thinking about, well, what would appeal to other people? But I I feel like I'm best at just understanding the products that I personally love. And that's a big part of what's driven um, my decisions to invest in companies um, over the past few years. Um, Companies like like Zwift and Whoop and... um, Mm. Uh, others in the health and wellness space. I recently invested in Form, uh, which makes the smart goggles. I just they're, they're coming on as a sponsor in uh, two oh, weeks. Amazing. Actually, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I loved it. They sent me a pair last week, and incredible. I love it. Absolutely. Being able to see like my heart rate and my pace yeah. while I'm swimming, um, especially for someone like myself who's learning how to swim as an adult. Yeah. Um, it just gives so much more visibility into my progress. On again. Like for me, I haven't swum since I retired in, in 2016. I mean, I swim with the kids and stuff, but now I, and I tried these goggles on it and the very first moment I put them on, I'm like, Oh, <laughs> I can just see, I can see the writing. I'm like, Oh no. Right. But 
literally within about 30 seconds later, I had to consciously go, oh, what's my pace? What's my heart rate? You know, I had to. Exactly. It's amazing how your eyes and your brain work past looking right at that immediate thing in your face right. and you actually have to go look at it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I found I found the goggles uh, extraordinary. Yeah, no, they're um, great. So I'm, I, I'm motivated to get involved with companies that build products I, I personally like. A couple of others I'm um, actually in the process of investing in now are um, Morton, uh, you know, makes the gels and the, the drinks. Yes. I heard great things about yeah, them. I haven't yet raced with their product, but I've, I've used it on some of my harder training days. And I just love that it's, you know, doesn't upset my stomach, but gives me the energy I need and taste, you know, you can't really taste it. Um, so I love that. And then, uh, super sapiens is another one that, uh, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they basically show you your blood glucose level real time with a continuous ah. glucose monitor. And so ah. that's something I'm kind of interested to play around with and learn more about what my blood. Do you have your finger on that or how's it? No, it actually <laughs> you keep it in your arm for a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, and yeah. It just yeah, um, tells you real time. Is that like for the diabetics? Exactly. It it's the same, that? same product. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cause I'm often just pricking my finger. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've, I, I've done lactate tests in that way many times. <laughs> yeah. So for people that don't know, Whoop is is a, a wearable device that records your sleep and recovery. Yes. Um, and I know it because when Kate Courtney was on the show, she mentioned it. Um, I think she's one of the sponsored athletes uh, through, through Whoop. There's another product, um, and I'm going to chat to them in a few weeks. Um, Dr. Maroon just reached out and told me about it, and it's called Apollo Neuro. Have you heard of Apollo Neuro? I'm not sure. What, what do they do? What they do is actually the wearable device does something to you. It, it, it creates different vibrations. Mm-hmm. And what the whole point of it is to take you from a sympathetic, you know, that fight, right. flight or fight, into the parasympathetic, into, wow. you know, that rest and digest. Wow. and. You know, it's all neuroscientists, neurosurgeons involved in it. So, and it's backed by incredible people. So, I'm going to be having a conversation with with uh, with them in the next couple of weeks, and I'm excited to try that one as well. Oh, cool! I'd love to give that a try. How to have a wearable that does something to you, right. not just reads reads what's happening. Uh, I don't well, know. I feel like the f- so much <laughs> so much of what goes into the recovery score for Whoop is your heart rate variability, your HRV, which hmm. basically indicates the kind of that um, the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems and uh, helps you understand how well recovered you are based on, you know, if you have more variability, it's actually an indication you're better recovered. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that was very much uh, Dr. Dan Plews. Exactly. We, we discussed. That's right. <laughs> he, he's worked with Whoop as well, you know, and a lot of, uh, yeah. a lot of what Whoop has built into their algorithm, I believe, comes from some of his research as well. Mm. So with all these startups that you're working with or companies that are getting going, when you go in there, are you just investing or are you getting on board as an advisor? Are you And, and, and somebody who wants to get a startup, what kind of advice can you give them? Sure. I, I, I like to try to get involved both as an investor and advisor. Um, and get more deeply involved with a smaller number of companies rather than rather than just writing small checks into a, a lot a larger number of companies. And um, 
And the advice I, I tend to focus on is on the growth side, just because that, that is where my background and expertise is. And um, what I'm really always looking for these days are what are the simple things that can be changed to help this company grow faster? And there are usually some very simple things that can be done that will just unlock growth. And probably the simplest way to explain it is growth is all about removing barriers and removing friction. And pretty much every product out there has, has some friction for new users. And if you can just kind of go through the go through the flow that a new user goes through or a new customer goes through between the time they hear about a product and actually start using it and think about what are the what are the biggest friction points and how can we remove those. Um, sometimes that can unlock a lot of growth. And so mm-hmm. I and and I look back at my time at Facebook and Uber and you know we were every week running dozens of experiments and A-B tests and always looking for how do we make 1% improvement here or half a percent improvement there. But when I look back at my time at both of those companies, each year there was maybe one change we made to the product that accounted for more growth than everything else combined. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, And a lot of times they were simple changes, um, yeah. it, it, things that didn't actually take that much work. And so, like, like what? Have you got one on top of mind? Sure. Could... So one example was um, at Uber, we were often supply constrained, which meant we actually needed more drivers to unlock growth, more so than riders. And so we were always trying to figure out how do we get more drivers to sign up for the Uber platform? And we, of course, did you know, paid marketing, or we'd show Facebook ads and post ads on job boards and radio ads and all that stuff. We had a driver referral program where drivers could refer other drivers to join the platform, and we'd give bonuses for for people that referred. Um, but we're like, there's got to be a, another source of new drivers. And uh, what we ultimately did was we added something in the Rider app that helped us get more drivers, which was we put a little button saying, want to become an Uber driver? <laughs> and we showed it to all of our Uber riders in the rider app. And oh. overnight, when we added that little button, uh, we had about, you know, I think it was 30% more driver signups overnight. Isn't that amazing? It was a huge so source cool. of new drivers. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and so I look back at like that year, that one little change drove more growth than everything else combined. And, um, you know, there, there are other examples I can share as well. Um, if we have time, but I, it's like, those are the things I'm now looking for with the startups I work with is let's, you know, step back and kind of think outside of the box and not just be trying to like make little tweaks to what color should this button be to improve the conversion rate. But let's step back and say, wait, is there a simple thing we can do that will really move the needle and create a step change and not just like these tiny iterations? They must have you come on board and with the way that you've seen things and just having that fresh set of eyes, that, that new look, and they must just go, oh. <laughs> yeah, well, like although sometimes I feel guilty because a lot of times the advice is like kind of obvious in hindsight. And so I feel like it doesn't sound, it's not like this super insightful thing. It's like, you know, hey, let's change the pricing. So instead of paying $180, you pay $30, you know, and, and do that over time. 
So a lot of times it's like simple things like that, but it can really make a big change. In- yeah, but the Uber example you had, the simplest idea, but it was just massive. And, it, and it's so obvious right. that if you were so confused by it, you wouldn't even thought about putting it on the rider app. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your relationships and your teams. You've mentioned your wife, Sarah, um, and your coach, uh, Dan Plews, but how have you been able to orchestrate and build this team and, and what is the importance of them now in your life moving forward? Sure. The, you know, the team is hugely important and it does start with my, my wife, Sarah and, and my four kids as well. They're all, you know, huge supporters of mine and um, with four little kids all under all 10 years old and younger, um, especially during a pandemic. Uh, yeah. I'm just fortunate that my, wife is there to help me when I'm, when I say I need to do a, a long ride today for four hours on Zwift. Um, can you <laughs> keep an eye on the kids while I do that? Um, so I'd say that's, you know, that's definitely number one. Um, and then, you know, Dan Plews is my coach. Um, it's, I mean, I, I, I don't think I could do this sport without a coach who's not just giving me my workouts, but checking in and, and um, mm. helping me adjust things depending on how I feel and, uh, and also just giving me, you know, that encouragement when I need it. Um, I also, my brother actually lives next door to me, uh, he and his wife oh. uh, and their three little kids. So uh, he's also been a big supporter of mine and come to several of my races with me to kind of cheer me on. So that's been really nice. And, and my parents as well. They live in Florida, but they're always, always there. So I, I think a lot of it starts with my family. <laughs> um, yeah, it's huge, isn't it? Just having that support all around you with family. Exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. So, and then, you know, it's hard right now with the pandemic. I, I'm not able to um, work with as many people as I, I would like to. For example, I've, I've kind of put a hit the pause button on all body work and, and that kind of stuff, which I, I really miss. I want to figure out if there's a way I can maybe start to, to get sports massages in a safe way. Um, but uh, I also had a strength coach I was working with who I've, I've hit the pause button on as well. Um, so some of those things I, I miss and I'm hoping we can get back to that uh, sometime soon. And then there's, there's actually another person who, I've recently added to my team, which is someone who um, I I just met over Instagram. Actually, he saw um, saw some of my posts, and uh, he was uh, an Olympic swimmer himself, and saw some of my videos on my Vasa swimmerg, and said, mm-hmm. "I can help you get better. <laughs> um, <laughs> your technique needs a lot of work." Uh, so. Uh, his name is Vitali. He lives in Russia, and he um, has been kind of FaceTiming me and giving me feedback on the swimmerg and uh, helping me come up with workouts and stuff like that. And that's another situation where we're doing kind of a barter system. He has a startup he's working on. And when I said, well, what can I pay you? He said, no, 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 don't pay me. If you can just give me some feedback on my startup, I'm happy to give you feedback on your swimming. So that's been kind of fun, too. What a great story. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I like that kind of thing that it's just so random across Instagram. Totally. Somebody somebody else again. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> you know? I mean, what you've got 
you're an amazing team behind you. And I do think the world will, you know, come open up soon here and, and you know, the vaccine and things will get back to normal. I think, you know, down here in Florida, it's it seems like it's been a fair bit more open than up in the Northeast. Um, in saying that, I think I've had COVID and things these last few, <laughs> this last month and and, uh, and it was it was a, a tough week or so oh, I had. Yeah. But, um, but things do tend to be a little bit looser down here, I, right. I think, than, than up northeast and i hope you get back to to your team for you is there a a definite morning routine that you apply to every day or are you pretty flexible i try to get my workouts done in the morning um and since i'm not i don't have access to a swimming pool right now so i basically do all of my workouts in inside at my house (laughs) i basically have a treadmill a bike on Zwift and a swim or Vasa swimmer all next to each other. And um, the nice thing about that is it's super efficient. I can just kind of do all the workouts in the morning without having to hop in the car and go anywhere. Um, so I, I like to, I like to do the workouts first thing in the morning. I've also been trying to do more yoga and stretching and things like that. Um, I try to do that before I start my workouts in the morning. And also um, when I'm done with the workout, uh, make sure I stretch a bit. And then I also, I always have uh, kind of this, I have this smoothie that I like to make (laughs) after, after my workouts that's become kind of a ritual as well, which I'll have that. And then I'll have my lunch and kind of then continue with the day. And, and so when you say continue with the day, are you, it does that, you set your meetings up in the afternoon? That's right. So I, I try to set most of my meetings up in the afternoon and leave yeah. my mornings open as much as possible. Um, you know, I, I sometimes have to make exceptions, especially when there are time zone differences. Um, I, I, I have to make some meetings happen in the morning, but I try to set aside morning as um, workout time and then catch up on all of my emails and all of that other stuff and then have my meetings in the afternoon, which works pretty well too with a lot of my meetings being uh, with people on the West Coast. Uh, if I can start my meetings at noon Eastern, that's 9 a.m. West Coast time. So it's kind of like starting in the morning from that <laughs> point of view. No, I get it. I'm a bit the same these days. I kind of use a little window between that six and eight to try yeah. and do some maybe do a little bit of training or even you know get I like to have breakfast with the kids at eight mm-hmm. uh, but it's kind of all my meetings living on the east coast at the moment in Florida it's kind of that that midday till 5 p.m gets me Europe it gets me early morning Australia and it gets me west coast so exactly. it's actually not a bad exactly <laughs> if you want to have a meeting with Greg or if you want to do an interview on a podcast this is my little window and it's when the kids nap. yes so the kids yes. are nap between at 12 or one right. or three kind of so I was happy when you suggested 2 p.m. as a time to do this this talk. <laughs> do you ever feel, are you a caffeine drinker or do you ever have that afternoon lull after getting up and training? And how are you coping with that if you do? I I sometimes get that, but I I basically have one glass of, one cup of coffee in the morning before I start working out. And sometimes I'll have a second cup um but I try not to drink any caffeine after, after in the afternoon, just because I uh, I am afraid it will keep me up at night if I do. Uh, I I have my one coffee in the morning, and it's almost my my little quiet time, you know, as I check in. And my my lunchtime drink is usually just a 
a lion's mane four sigmatic you know mushroom tea um sponsoring this show for a little while but i was using their product for a long time before that and i'm happy to promote them because i just i really feel feel fantastic my brain is on fire with the lion's oh, wow. mane i really really like it so cool you want to try something in the afternoon i'll give that a try so, i actually have so, been uh trying athletic greens and i i, oh, I really yeah. like the way it tastes and i think I, I feel good too with that and i tend to have that um kind of after lunch as well kind of in the early afternoon with you i have it as as my lunch it's nice to have an extra drink other than just water exactly. um what about your sleep and recovery are you doing anything pre-bed i know you've got your whoop that's measuring your sleep but you have you been experimenting with how to optimize your sleep i have been a bit i i have to say i'm not yet an expert at it <laughs> and um you know I, I miss the days when i could just sleep you know eight to ten hours <laughs> without waking up once um and you know these days i if i wake up twice in the middle of the night i feel like that was a good night of sleep um so i'm still trying to figure out how can i just sleep through the night without waking up um but i do try to go to bed pretty early um we put all the kids all the kids are asleep by 8:30 or 9 and then my wife and i are both so exhausted that we basically fall asleep immediately good. after that <laughs> Sounds familiar. I love hearing parents when they're like, oh, yeah, we put the kids at eight and then we watch a show. And right. I'm like, <laughs> the thing I found has helped me the most is um, I have a, a mattress pad that uh, cools off um, at night. I, I turn it on and yeah. it keeps the bed cold. And um, that's what I'm using the chili pad. Yeah, chili pad. That's right. And so. They're, they're not but I use those as well. Yeah. yeah, that I found that's really helped me because my wife and I have different temperatures at which we like to sleep. And uh, I was always turning the AC all the way down and she was getting cold and we couldn't really figure it out. But now with the chili pad, it's all it's all working out well. The chili pad I put on as low as it exactly. can go. And, and the good thing about it, it turns the heat up. I turn the heat up at six or whatever. And so suddenly you, you wake up, you're like, oh, I'm so hot. <laughs> without having to a a sound so yeah we we purchased those back i think in april or may of this year and it's been great has uh dr dan plues got you on a a shack key mat i actually um just recently got one and uh i've used it a few times i i haven't figured out if it works for me yet i heard you said that it works for you right it it helped you one for and I, I just started using it for 20 minutes before bed. Okay. Um, so people listening, a shaki mat is basically a bit of a bit of plastic nails <laughs> uh, that you lie on for a little bit, and it doesn't even hurt me anymore. I think I've kind of gotten wow. the pain is not uncomfortable. Do you keep a t-shirt like, on when you lie on it, or do you just no no bare skin? Bare skin. Uh, and you lie on it for then, 20 minutes. Yeah, at least 20 minutes um, before bed. And oh, wow. my wife Laura uses it um she usually goes to bed a fraction after me she's got more to do with the kids um and she's addicted to it she just right. loves it as well and that again they're not a sponsor or anything i'm not selling them but I, it has been fun to experiment huh. with that um and i do think there there might be something to it i don't know the science i don't know anything about it i did it because your coach and, and right. my friend dan blue give it a try and okay um, i'm going to try it, was, it tonight for 20 minutes bareback because uh, i i just i haven't i don't think i've used it properly <laughs> <laughs> it's really not not terribly bad and uh, but mate i've kept you for so long i do have so many other things i want to chat to you about but um 
you know, I, I actually encourage you to go try some of the Hyperice gear. If you don't have, I think if you use the Hypervolt before I you do. go I, out. I, I and you use that. Um, I find that does, yeah. I have a Hyperice. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I found that while, while you're not getting massage or, or whatever, that might be good. And it sounds to me a lot of you're swimming, and we can talk more post-show, but um, a lot of it's going to be flexibility issues more than, you know, when you talk technique right. in swimming, you know, all these great swimmers of the world that have been swimming since our five go, you know, it's all technique. It's like, well, you start sport late, your shoulders aren't used to the flexibility and the range of motion that you're meant to have for swimming. So it just, that's a process of releasing the fascia around the shoulders a fair bit as well, I found. So if you have something that is good at fascial release type work, whether it's Graston or cupping or any of that kind of stuff to really loosen up the shoulders, I think you'll find that really helps the range of motion and, and then your technique gets better because of that. Okay. So I will give that a um, we, we can chat more about that later, mate. But I just <laughs> while I had it on my mind, Ed, mate, this has just been really, really fantastic just to, to share your journey and, and, and learn so much about what you've gone through both as an athlete and your career. Just incredible the insights you have in terms of growth and, and building businesses, just phenomenal and no wonder people are bartering with you to try and get on board and give your input. But um, Now, where can listeners follow you and follow your journey? Uh, probably the best place would be on Instagram. I'm uber.ed.baker. And uh, just a few weeks ago, I started posting my training each day as, as Instagram stories, um, which has been kind of fun. And actually, that's how I met the, the swimmer, for example, who's now been coaching me and um, I find during COVID, it's nice a nice way to kind of share and connect with other athletes. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of having fun doing that. Good man. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll put all of that in my show notes. Um, thanks again for all your time, and thanks everybody for listening um, and sharing the note and all the uh, the show and all your feedback. Um, you can you can find all the show notes and timestamps and links and coupon codes at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. All right. Thanks again, Ed. Stay on the line. So much, Greg. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.